0: Well, I'm not sure what I should say after those gracious words from you, Rick. Um, I'll see you after class. <laughs> um, well, we, we can deconstruct that later on. <laughs> it's great to see so many of you here today. Really wonderful. What do you say to some of the people whom you have known for a year or more? Here are my final words to you. topic is... Facts matter, but they're not enough. For some of us, the question began in grade six, if you can go back to grade six. Why, miss, do I have to know this? I've been working with some teachers recently, and I keep on asking them, why do you teach your kids prime numbers? And the answer is an empty set. They really don't know. I'm not blaming them. For others, it began in high school, around the grade nine or the grade 10 level usually in the notorious math class. Why, sir, do I have to know this? What's the value of my knowing, the binomial theorem? Not sure whether you can recall what the answer was or was not. Clearly in our mind, many varied experiences, something was and maybe still is missing. So, you and I, we studied for the exam late nights and multiple cups of coffee. We take the exam the next week and all that knowledge that we worked so hard to acquire is now deceased, as far as we are concerned. Is that all there is to acquire knowledge? The secular is haunted by the chorus of the sacred and the sacred is validated by its enmeshments amishma- its with the secular." Their words from the pen of Charles Taylor. And from the British mathematician Ian Stewart in his wonderful book, Why Beauty is Truth. Why does the universe seem to be so mathematical? Profound question. Various answers have been proposed, but I find none of them very convincing. The symmetrical relation between mathematical ideas and the physical world, like the symmetry between our sense of beauty and the most profoundly important mathematical forms, is a deep and possibly unsolvable mystery. None of us can say why beauty is truth, and truth beauty. We can only contemplate the infinite complexity of the relationship. All of us intuitively know I think it's fair to say that facts matter, but they are simply not enough. We all, each of us here, we want more than facts. We know and feel deep down that there's something far more than acquiring facts. One of the most memorable characters created by the British novelist Charles Dickens was Mr. Thomas Gradgrind an uninspiring school teacher who is a significant person in hard times, one of Dickens' novels. And his educational philosophy was very simple. Now what I want is facts. In today's parlance, the basics. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. The basics, how to add, subtract, multiply, divide and parts of speech. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else. Thinking and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. And the Pulitzer Prize winning author, and I like her work so much, Marilyn Robinson, in her most recent book, which is really worth reading, What are we doing here? What a beautiful title. What are we doing here? She makes the following statements. Why teach the humanities? Why study them? American universities are literally shaped around them and have been since their founding. Yet the question is put in the bluntest form. What are they good for? So I'd like to take her thesis and apply to us. What are we doing here? We're here to acquire knowledge. That's why universities exist. Or is that all? To learn and then to teach facts so that we can pass the exams at the end? But is that all that a Christian university like Tyndale can or should provide to the students who spend time inside this magnificent structure? Knowledge, after all, we have the internet at our fingertips. We have too much knowledge, much more than any of us can digest, often scattered, isolated, discrete factoids known as knowledge. My question is, how does all the knowledge we have amassed over the years, how do all the facts hold together? Is there a center to it? Where do we go from here? This is where Christianity comes in and where a Christian university like Tyndale can equip us with the tools to go beyond learning stuff. Just stuff. The New Testament speaks of all things. I like the scripture. All things holding together. All things holding together or being knit together in Christ. If you're a scientist, you know they are looking for what is called guts. The grand unified theory: Somehow, there's a feeling that these discrete things are wonderfully connected, and Paul is saying they are connected in Christ. One of the topics that we frequently discussed and rediscussed and revisited in our faculty meetings was: how is a Christian education qualitatively different from that offered in a secular university? Do or can we see that Christ holds together everything? Now, what does this mean? And how do we make explicit what we believe? That understanding and wisdom are vitally important. Wisdom has almost disappeared from our vocabulary. It's important to make sense of these two. This is a question that, have challenged, that has challenged me over the past few years. What are we teaching here or should be teaching? Just knowledge? Just knowledge, more stuff? Or are there zones of knowing which are far more powerful, meaningful, purposeful, and what God desires? I recently asked a group of Christian educators at the conference the question. I'd like you to think about the question. If Christ was your math teacher, how would he teach the subject? If Christ was your teacher, pastor, how would he teach the subject? How would he pastor on a Sunday morning? Would he still use parables? Would he make things somewhat tricky for us to understand? Would he force you and me to think critically and ask the why questions, as he did? I do not believe that we in our faculty meetings fully resolved that question in our faculty meetings was a topic of active discussion amongst Christian educators. May I be given permission to offer a few words on this topic? These ideas are not my own, but have come from discussing them with some of my dear empowering friends and colleagues at Tyndale's, faculty, staff, and students, some deeply committed educators who have helped me formulate some positions. I'd like to personally thank Carla, Doug, Jane, Rick, Terry, and others, too many to mention, for the time we spent exploring the topic. Terry helped me to see Bloom's taxonomy that we're all familiar with as a theological construct with wisdom or synthesis as foundational to the taxonomy, not knowledge, but wisdom as foundational to the taxonomy. What if we were to make wisdom the organizer? What if we were to change the paradigm and make understanding and wisdom the organizer and not knowledge? You know, I find it very instructive to read in the second chapter of Genesis at the very start of the biblical narrative, the words, and these are from John Golden Gate's new translation of the First Testament. Just Genesis chapter 2, 17. That verse has always puzzled me. But from the good and bad knowledge tree, you will not eat. It's a very strange verse. God is saying from this tree, of knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. In his book, Genesis for Normal People, the theologians Peter Enns wrote, and Jared Bias wrote, why not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's wrong with eating the fruit from such a tree? Did we miss something here? Isn't that what every parent wishes for his or her child? parents who worry about their teenagers. You know what we mean. Why does eating from a tree that gives you the knowledge of good and evil carry the death penalty? What are thinking about? He went on to say, God did not command Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because such knowledge is wrong. It is not that God does not ever want Adam and Eve to know good and evil. That is precisely what he does want from them but they have to go about gaining such knowledge his way I've been reflecting on that knowledge without wisdom is dangerous knowledge without wisdom is dangerous this brings me back to a discussion with Terry regarding bloomstacks on me said western European culture thinks of an Aristotelian framework as very sequential. You start with knowledge and you move up to understanding and finally to evaluation of wisdom. But Terry pointed out that in the indigenous culture, the elders and parents use the reverse processing approach in teaching. First they teach the reason for knowing, wow, we talk about the wisdom of the elders. I think they've got it, they've got it. They go for wisdom and understanding first. What an organizer. They give their reasons for knowing first. Wisdom, this puts knowledge in the right place. As you begin or continue on your journey and continue to explore the many options before you, Please ask yourself, when you teach a subject, what am I teaching? What am I teaching? Knowledge without a clear vision of why? If the students ask me, why do I have to know this? What do I say? Can I see that as a part of a bigger picture? Or am I focusing on understanding and wisdom first? My plea to you, please, Go for understanding and wisdom. What would a person observing your approach say? Would a person say that I'm teaching for knowledge, more stuff, or am I teaching for understanding or wisdom? This is the challenge we all face and will always face. I like what it states in Proverbs chapter 4. Sorry about the sexist language. Listen my sons and daughters, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she'll protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. I'd like to close with a Celtic prayer, which is called Let Us Go Forth. In the goodness of our merciful Father, in the gentleness of our brother Jesus, in the radiance of the Holy Spirit, in the faith of the apostles, in the joyful praise of the angels, in the holiness of the saints, in the courage of the martyrs. Let us go forth in the wisdom of our all-seeing Father, in the patience of our all-loving brother, in the learning of the apostles, in the gracious guidance of the angels, in the patience of the saints, in the self-control of the martyrs, such is the path of all servants of Christ, the path from death to eternal life. Amen.